Well, good evening. Turn, if you would, tonight to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is where we're going to be. I don't know if this service tonight has messed with your internal or mental clock, but it certainly messed with mine. As we were driving to church tonight, I had to remind myself there's a reason why other churches aren't having church tonight. Uh, it's because this is Tuesday night, and they would probably meet tomorrow night. But uh, anyways, uh, glad you're here, and hope you have a good fourth tomorrow. I hope that uh, whatever you do, you enjoy it, and that you're safe, and that we all remember the blessing that it is to be a part of this great country. We are very, very, very blessed, and I know that you know that, but we are very blessed to be a part of this nation. So that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we will get started. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. But, Lord, we are mindful tonight, I trust, and will be throughout the next day or so. Lord, we're mindful of just how blessed we are to be a part of this nation. God, to be able to meet here tonight with freedom, to be able to do so with no fear, it's a tremendous blessing. I pray that we would not take that for granted or take it lightly. God, I pray that you would help us to give attention to your word this evening, or that this time would be valuable, that this time would be profitable, that it would be a help to each of us here tonight. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, you may remember, we took a break from our study of 2 Corinthians and dealt with a passage from uh, the book of Peter. And so tonight, I just want to remind us of a couple of things that uh, we have looked at in previous messages so that hopefully uh, we're aware of the context, we're aware of the flow of things. I know that it's easy to forget uh, from week to week what's been dealt with, what's been studied, and then if we take a week off, it only makes things that much worse. And so I just want to remind us that the Apostle Paul, his ministry was under attack from those who would be false prophets or false teachers. They were attacking his integrity or the lack thereof. They accused the Apostle Paul of being one who said what was convenient, not necessarily what he meant. And so the Apostle Paul had spent some time trying to defend his ministry, trying to defend his integrity. And in doing so, two weeks ago, we watched as Paul further explained the course of action that led him to not yet to have returned to Corinth. Now, he talked about how he was led to Troas, and then he went uh, to other places. But in doing so, something that he mentioned was this, is that every place he went, he sought to be a sweet savor of the Lord. And so basically what Paul was saying is, wherever he went, wherever God led, he was trying to be a witness and he was trying to be a testimony uh, for God wherever he went. And because of that, he saw triumphs or victories take place. And so two weeks ago, if you remember, uh, we talked about this, how so many times we are guilty if we're not careful of compartmentalizing our Christian life. We don't really speak boldly of Christ at work or maybe with the family or maybe in the public forum because we feel like that that's not really our place to do so. And so as a result of compartmentalizing our Christianity, the only place we're really bold in our Christian life is around other Christians in Christian settings. And then we wonder why there aren't more spiritual victories won. You and I have got to be reminded from time to time that we are allowed and we are able and we need to live out our Christian faith no matter where we go and to do so boldly. Does that sound familiar? If it doesn't, it's too bad, okay? But uh, that's what we talked about two weeks ago, and so tonight we're moving on. I want to share something with us this evening that I know all of you understand, whether you've ever been a part of the the process or not. But this evening, I want us to talk about for just a moment, 
the subject of higher education in the college form. All right, the, the subject of higher education in the college form. Whether or not you've gone to college, here's what you know, is you can get a major these days in many, many different things, or you can get a degree in many different subjects. And so it wouldn't surprise you for me to say something like this, that if you wanted, you could go to college and you could get a degree in engineering. If you wanted, you could go to school, get a degree in business, in finance, in law, in political science, in English, and the list just goes on and on and on. There are many, many options available if a person wants to seek a degree from a college or university. So all that in mind, I want us to think about another degree that one can seek and one can acquire, and that would be a degree in journalism. A degree in journalism. The idea I think most of us know behind a degree in journalism would be this, is that with that degree, you would want to go into some kind of format like TV, radio, or newspaper. Okay, TV, radio, or, or newspaper, and the idea would be to write articles, write pieces, to present information in such a way that uh, it could inform the general public. So all that said, think about this, that, that when a person goes to college, theoretically those students are being taught by some of the better developed minds in that particular industry. Remember, I said theoretically that's what's happening. So if someone is going for an engineering degree or a law degree or a business degree, whatever it may be, the thought would be that they are, they are being taught by some very well-educated people which would then produce some well-educated individuals. That would be the thought process, right? You would assume that if somebody went to college for a business degree, they would come out with a good understanding of business practices and business techniques. If somebody went to school for the purpose of law, you would expect them to come out with a good understanding of some kind of law. So if you think about that, you would assume that if someone went to school for the purpose of journalism, they would come out with a pretty good understanding of journalism in certain aspects of it, correct? Now, I promise, I promise there's a point to all this. You would assume they would come out with a pretty good understanding of the aspects and the facets of journalism, aspects and facets which it would include things like this, good grammar. That would be helpful in the world of journalism, would it not, good grammar? Maybe good spelling would be a help if you were going to be a journalist where your thoughts and ideas would be conveyed on paper. So good grammar, good spelling, maybe good sen sentence structure, right? Good sentence structure, knowing how to formulate thoughts and formulate ideas and put them on paper and, and everything be the way it's supposed to be. That would seem to make sense, right, with somebody or from somebody with a journalism degree? And I say, why are you, you trying to bring all this to our attention? I want us to think about this. How many of us ever read articles on the Internet these days? 
Do any of us ever read articles on the Internet these days? That's where I get most of my news, not because I, I'm naive and think that if I read it on the Internet it must be true, but that's just where I get most of my news is by reading different articles on the Internet. And here is what I have found to be amazing over the years, that if these people have journalism degrees, many of them ought to seek a refund. Their sentence structure isn't so great. Their grasp of the English language many times does not seem to be too solid. Uh, their, their grammar is not so great. Their spelling many times is not so good. I don't know what all the contributing factors are of it or that are contributing to it. I, I don't know what all the issues are. I just know this from what I have seen in the world of journalism Journalists aren't being portrayed many times in the best light because of the product that is being put out there for the consumers to consume. Now, I'm using that illustration tonight for a reason. We'll get back to that in a couple of moments. But tonight, I want us to begin looking in verse number 5. In verse number 5, I want us to begin looking in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians and I want us to be reminded tonight of who the author of this letter is. I know that we know this, but I want us to think about this. We are talking about the words of the Apostle Paul as the author of this book to the believers of Corinth. And notice what he says in verse number 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves. You know what the Apostle Paul was conveying in that statement in verse number 5? He was conveying this thought, he was conveying this idea that he was fully aware of this truth that in and of himself he was not sufficient or capable to do anything on his own. In and of himself, the Apostle Paul said that he was not sufficient or that he was not capable of himself to do anything, especially in the work of the Lord. Now, if the Apostle Paul came to that conclusion as it related to his ministry, what do you think you and I probably ought to conclude as it relates to us and our ministries? We're no better for sure, and we ought to conclude this, that in and of ourselves we are incapable of doing anything, especially the work of the Lord. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, without the aid of God helping me, there is no way in the world that I can do what I've been called to do in the manner in which I've been called to do it. I can't teach the way that I'm supposed to. I can't preach the way that I'm supposed to. I can't minister in the way that I'm supposed to. I can't counsel in the way that I'm supposed to. In and of myself, I am not sufficient and I am not capable. And the truth is no different for anyone who walks on earth today. Not one of us in this room tonight has the ability to do it in and of ourselves. That's a good reminder because sometimes if we're not careful, we start thinking we can do certain things. 
We start thinking, well, I can do this, and I can do that, and I can do this, and I can do that, and I've got the ability to do this, and I know how to do this. And, and, and what we're doing is this, is we're exalting ourselves, saying we are capable and we are able, and our talents are sufficient for the task that is upon us, and we need to be reminded, especially in the work of the Lord, we don't have the ability to do anything in and of ourselves. We need that reminder. He goes on to say this in verse number 5, just to follow up on that thought. He said, but our sufficiency is of God. You know what Paul understood? He understood that the only way that he was able or capable to do what God had called him to do is if God did the work through him. The only way that I can teach in the way that I'm supposed to, the only way that I can preach in the way that I'm supposed to, the only way that I can minister in the way that I'm supposed to is if God does the work through me. As I was thinking about this truth, as I was preparing for the message tonight, as I was going over my thoughts and as I was going over my notes, I was reminded so vividly of what Paul was saying And it caused me once more to say to the Lord in prayer, God, I need your help even tonight because if you don't help me tonight, then I can't do what you've called me to do and the time will be a waste. God has to do the work. God has to do the work in the Sunday school class. God has to do the work in the junior church. God has to do the work in any area of ministry that we would try to engage in. If God doesn't do it, will not do what needs to be done in the way it ought to be done. So here's Paul acknowledging his insufficiency, his inability to do what he is supposed to do without the sufficiency of God in his life. He goes on to say in verse number 6, we're just going to look at the first part of this verse. We'll add to it next time we're in the passage. But he says, "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament." So he said, it is God who has made us able ministers or servants of this new testament or this new covenant, this new dispensation. So Paul is saying again, very clearly, very openly, very honestly, I cannot do this on my own. God has to do it. And it is God who has enabled me. Without that enabling, I'm useless in the ministry. Again, true of every one of us, whether we like to admit it or not. If God is not doing the work, then our effort is in vain. So that in mind, keep this also in your thought process, that the Apostle Paul is under attack, that his integrity is under attack, and and he's having to defend himself against these false teachers who are trying to destroy him. And look in verse number 1 tonight and see what Paul said. He said to the believers of Corinth, whom he had a pretty good relationship established with, he said, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we begin again to commend ourselves? What does that mean? It just means this. Is this where we're at in our relationship where I have to kind of prove to you who I am? Now, that's really not a position that the Corinthians should have been in with the Apostle Paul, correct? 
Listen, he is saying, is this really where we're at in this relationship that I've got to kind of prove to you once more who I am and I've got to, I've got to kind of build myself up to you all? He said, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? What does it mean to have epistles of commendation? It would basically mean this, letters of recommendation. There were times that the apostles or the prophets, not the prophets, the apostles or the preachers, the, the, the pastors would travel and they would do so with a letter basically of authenticity from other messages so that the people that they were going to would know these people have been vetted, they have been inspected, and they are the genuine teachers of the Word of God. And so what Paul is saying is, is this what we need? Do I need some kind of a letter of recommendation to you? Or would you suggest that I need a letter of recommendation from you? Well, that would be absurd, right? Why would that be absurd? Again, because of the established relationship that Paul had with these believers. So it's not as though they were ignorant of him and his ministry and his impact and what he had accomplished and what he had taught. But he's just asking this question in light of his integrity being attacked. Is this where we're at? Is this what needs to happen? Do I need to prove to you who I am? And are you suggesting that I need letters of recommendation from you as I go out? Well, that would be absurd. But notice what he said in verse number 2. He said, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts. What does it mean whenever he says, ye are our epistle written in our hearts? Well, it means this, you are our letter. The relationship that I have with you is that letter of authenticity of who I am in my ministry with you. Who I am with you and the relationship that we've had established, he said, you are the letter, you are that, that document, so to speak, but it's not something that's been written on paper, that's silly, no, you are our letter written in our hearts. So Paul is again trying to convey to them the relationship that they have established and the silliness of his integrity being attacked or questioned at all. But notice what he said next to them. He said, known and read of all men. What is Paul saying in that little statement? He is saying this, all men are fully aware of the relationship that you and I have with one another. People aren't ignorant of this relationship. People aren't ignorant of what we have between ourselves. And, and so you are our epistle written in our hearts, and everyone is fully aware of it. Now this is, to me, where it gets interesting. Verse number 3, he says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the apostle of Christ, ministered or served by us or through us. Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared. What does it mean to be manifestly declared? It means to be openly known as. 
You following this? To be openly known as something. It is manifest. It is open. It is visible for anyone to see, for anyone to inspect. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be what? The epistle of Christ. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. He said this is not something that's been written down on stone, but it's been written down in the flesh of the heart. But I want us to focus on this statement, that they were openly or manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ. Your life, Paul says, is a letter writing and explaining and openly declaring what Christ has done in your life. Are we at a place, Paul says, where I need to commend myself unto you once more? Is this where we're at? Well, shucks, no, Paul, of course that's not where we're at. Uh, do I need letters of recommendation for you? And do I need letters of recommendations from you? No, Paul, of course not. No, Paul would say, no, 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 see, you are our epistle written in our heart. That's the relationship that's established what we have. But he said, you've got to remember this, that you are also an open declaration by way of a letter, so to speak, of what God has done in your life, not something that's written on tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Think about who these believers had been influenced by. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. That's where some of their division came from, right? I am of Paul, some said. I am of Apollos, others said. I am of Cephas, some said. And others boldly and proudly said, well, I am of Christ. Okay, they had been influenced by some of the most renowned preachers and people of their day, correct? It's kind of like a college student submitting themselves or subjecting themselves to some of the brighter minds in the industry, for lack of better words. Here are the believers of Corinth, and who have they been influenced by? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. Okay, they've had all these influences, and their life is an epistle or a letter or a testimony of what God had done in their lives. Well, this should have been a beautiful epistle, should it not? I mean... You get to sit under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I mean, that's not real weak teaching and preaching and doctrine and theology. You got to sit under the ministry of, of the Apostle Peter. I know Peter had his issues in his early days, but he kind of turned the corner and he ended up fairly well. To get some influence from Peter, that's pretty impressive. This should have been a beautiful epistle. The man Apollos is a man who is well spoken of, and you couldn't have done, obviously, any better than Christ. So this epistle that was openly declared of, of what Christ had done through the ministry of Paul and others, this should have been a beautiful epistle 
that was written. But what is the whole first letter of Corinthians a message of? It's a message of rebuke. It's a message of discipline. It's, it's a message of get it together, guys. You've got division. You've got immaturity. You've got immorality. You've got selfishness. You've got all these different problems plaguing the church. And so here you are. You've been subjected to some of the greatest minds of all Christianity. And the letter that you are writing of what Christ has done in your life, it should be beautifully written. And it's a mess. Really, if you think about it, that letter that was written... Again, for lack of better words, didn't paint the industry so well, did it? What was manifestly declared by them to be the letter or the epistle of Christ, it was not the most beautiful of manuscripts, for lack of better words. So as I was thinking about that, I asked myself this question. Susie and I were talking about this a little bit this week, and we, we were just kicking around this thought, this idea, this truth. Isn't it a beautiful thing when you see someone who's come into contact with the power of God and the epistle that's been written in their life by way of relationship with Christ that is openly or manifestly declared? Isn't it a beautiful thing when you see wonderful progress taking place in that person's life? I mean, really, if you think about it, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? When you talk to someone and their story goes something like this, you know, before salvation, before coming into contact with Jesus Christ, you know, I, I was ensnared by this particular addiction and I was ensnared by, by this particular vice. But I, I'm telling you, as a result of the grace of God working in my life, I'm telling you, God's given me victory over that. And it's something that is openly declared for everyone to see. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful testimony for people to get to read? When you think of something like this, I used to be so profane before I came into contact with God. Before God got a hold of my life, before God got a hold of my heart, before God got a hold of me and, and, and set my feet in a new way, and before God changed my life, I'm telling you, I was just a horrible person to be around because of the things that I would speak and the anger that I was filled with and, and, and you just never knew how I was going to respond. But isn't it an amazing and a beautiful thing to read and to watch when a person's life has been transformed and everyone gets to see it, that God did that work? Yes. 
I mean, we've all known some people, right, who used to have that kind of a testimony. And we could say, man, would you look at what God has done? Now, we probably didn't say, would you look at the epistle that's been written upon their heart by Christ? But in essence, that's what we're saying. Would you look at the story that's been written in their life because of the power of God? We've heard stories like this. As a result of salvation, as a result of salvation coming to our home, our marriage has never been better. Our family life has never been better. I'm telling you, it's it's just better than it's ever been before. That is the way the manuscript is supposed to look. That's how the sentence structure is supposed to look. That's how the grammar is supposed to look. That when God came in, God started making changes and everything started falling in place the way that it's supposed to. That's what God's story is supposed to look like in a believer's life. It's not going to be perfect. But when people are reading the the script, so to speak, when people are reading the epistle, they ought to be able to realize that person has been changed by the power of God in their life. So that's the way it's supposed to be. But how many times is it kind of like a piece we're reading today on the Internet? And the Christian life and how it's supposed to how it's supposed to read does not read at all the way it ought. It happens, doesn't it? I'm not trying to be rude, I'm not trying to be ugly, but Sometimes it's almost like the church of Corinth, and I'm not saying that our church is like the church of Corinth, but what I'm saying is is sometimes it's kind of like the church of Corinth is still alive and well today, and what you see people dealing with in their Christian life after years of salvation and years of good influence, not of perfect people, but of people that God is using, where there should be change, there's still not the change that ought to be present. You see people, and after years of salvation, at least the testimony of salvation, it's still an epistle that's read like this. I got saved, but I've got the same habits that I've always had. I got saved, but I've got the same language that I've always used. I got saved, but I've got the same anger issues that I've always had. I got saved, but the marriage isn't any better than it once was. I got saved, but the family isn't any better than it once was. Let's be honest. There are too many stories that are written like that. And here's the thing with those stories. They are as manifestly declared as the good stories are. And all I mean by that is this. All of us know people who identify themselves as believers, and as we read their epistle of what Christ has supposedly done in their lives, we would say this, 
seemingly Christ hasn't done much in their life. Been there, right? We've, we've seen it. It's not a critical spirit. It's just being honest. If they've come to know Christ, Christ obviously hasn't done much for them. And so think about it. If poorly written articles today make you say, wow, journalism isn't what it once was, and it kind of paints the whole industry in a bad light, what is a life written by way of a relationship with Christ that's not seen much change? What does that do, really, then, for the testimony of Christianity? Well, it doesn't paint Christianity in the best of light, does it? You know this as well as I do. Christianity, more times than not, is its own worst enemy. The victories aren't there. The progress isn't there. The hunger isn't there. The desire isn't there. And everyone can see the story that's been written of what Christ has supposedly done, and it's not a good story. And I want to remind us tonight that it's possible for that to happen to us. Do we realize this? It's possible for that to be true of us. That we would claim Christ has come into our lives and Christ has saved us. But if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in a place where what is being written of what Christ has done in our life is not anything that is flattering or becoming to the testimony of Christianity. Every one of us should have a desire, especially among the lost, to make sure that what they are seeing and what they are reading by way of epistle is something that is beautiful and life-changing so that they might be attracted to it and have some kind of a desire to have what we've got. It should be our desire to represent Christianity in such a way that when people see it, when they read it, they're impressed by what they're seeing. And I think sometimes here's what happens. I, I think sometimes this is what trips people up. They've got excuses. Because we've all got excuses, do we not? We've got this as an excuse. We've got this as an excuse. If this were only different, then our lives would be different. If this would change, if they would change, if my circumstances would change, then, then everything would be better in my life. Hold on. First of all, the Corinthians are a living testimony that you can have the best influences and not turn out the way that we're supposed to. Okay? But we've also got to be reminded of this. Our excuses will never fly in the face of God. Our excuses before God are not going to fly because here's what God knows far better or far more than we want to admit sometimes we have everything in our lives we need 
to be the Christians we're supposed to be telling the story we're supposed to be telling. If you're saved, who lives within you? The Holy Spirit of God. Friends, you're not going to do any better than that, and I'm not going to do any better than that. So we can't say, well, what about this, and what about this, and what about this? No, we've got the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us, that leads us, that guides us. That's a pretty critical part of you and I writing a story that's attractive and what it's supposed to be in the eyes of the world. I think all of us own at least one copy of the Scripture, do we not? We do. So we kind of know what God expects of us from his word. But we don't have the Apostle Paul in our lives. Trust me, I know you don't. But you have the Apostle Paul in your life by way of the word of God. You've got Peter, you've got James, you've got John, you've got the Gospels. We've got everything we need. We've got the Word of God, we've got the Spirit of God. We've got some good influences in our lives. Our excuses fall flat when we're honest. There's no reason that the epistle that is being declared of Christ and what he's done of us, there's no reason why it should not be writing a beautiful story. And only you and I can determine what kind of story we let Christ write in our lives. He wants to do the work, but we have to be willing to yield ourselves to let him do it. So tonight, I'm, I'm just asking... Away from the house of God, away from fellow Christians and like-minded people. This epistle of Christ in your life. What is it manifestly declaring to others? Away from the church, away from the house of God, away from the people of God. When other people are looking at your life and reading your story. What are people reading? Is it reflecting Christianity in the way that it ought? Or are we sending a pretty mixed signal of what Christ can supposedly do for those who need him? We ought to think about it because it's, it's highly important. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you would help us, Lord, just to be mindful of the epistle that we are letting be writ, wrote about our lives. God, as it relates to what you're doing in us and through us, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be honest before you and to admit whether or not the story is as it ought to be. We've been exposed to everything we need to be exposed to to live the life we ought to be living. So now it's just a matter of whether or not we'll use what we've been given to live the way we ought to live. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.